The Loose Cannons podcast is a free-form discussion about film that contains mature language, such as poop and titty, and descriptions of mature situations, such as filing taxes and raising children. We do not have any concern for spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film or films we are discussing and don't want to have the twists ruined for you, please watch the film before listening to the podcast. Время лисицы, наконец, третье счастливое время. Время волков это время наших воинственных предков. Время лисиц это наше время. Счастливые времена впереди. Но чтобы дожить до них, люди должны, как это не горько, перенести жестокие страдания. Hey everyone, it's another Loose Cannons podcast coming at ya. Today we're going to be discussing 1965's White Mountains. A.K.A. Hard Passage, A.K.A. El Yigori, directed by Melis Ubukayev. Before we do that, let's uh, let's do this. I guess new segment yep. we've never done before called Harold's and Announcements. Yeah, I'm still unsure about those I noises in this segment. <laughs> I just came up new segment, with this idea so. on the spot, but I'm sure everyone will be prepared uh, for it. Uh, I was just like, mm. I don't know what to do, so I just make fart noises with my mouth. <laughs> it's very weird. Yeah. If only you could right. replicate uh. the that uh, weird instrument, I don't remember the name of, that's featured in the movie we're going to be discussing later. They're like, bow, 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 bow. That would have been a really good musical choice, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Patrick, um, tell us about something. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, go ahead and denounce a movie called Red Sparrow, uh, directed by Francis Lawrence from 2018. Uh, yeah, I think this movie way, way misses the mark on the idea of using exploitation to comment on something. I think it wades too far into actually being exploitative and does not understand uh, the sort of power structure that it's trying to critique and so it just ends up being extremely sexist and horrible and um, I know we talked a little bit earlier in the year about whether or not a character dies doesn't necessarily make them the successful one in a film. Okay, but don't spoil it. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. All right, I'm not going to tell you who dies. I'm just just to say that there is a character in it who their morality basically dominates the film. And um yeah, that that's the main problem with it is that the movie doesn't realize that it's completely on that moral wavelength as opposed to 
being on the side of the ostensibly good character in the movie. So yeah, it's uh it, it tries to it tries to kind of like couch its sexism by <laughs> being like, oh yeah, well this person is a bad guy and it's like doesn't really seem like you think that truly though. So Yeah, there might so. be um an episode coming out it might have already come out by the time this is released or maybe not uh it may or may not feature a person who may or may not be my girlfriend uh, at, this, <laughs> at this time and uh yeah we we get into that movie um but suffice to say i might have a slightly different take on it than patrick all right Ooh-hoo. we're here for just, different takes just just yep. just slightly just to know, yep. just to know that I hated this movie. Yep. Mum's the word for me. I've seen it, but sworn to secrecy for the time being. Basil. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, I will herald uh, an also sexist movie, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Yep, called Husbands by John Cassavetes. <laughs> Uh, this movie's really good. The notorious yeah. feminist, John Cassavetes? <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> um, I really, really like the way that John Cassavetes makes movies. They're very upsetting for me to watch, partly because they're emotionally really incomprehensible to me. Like, all the characters are super volatile and, like, super irrational, and I can never, like, put my finger on, like, like what's going on. Like, people will just be having a conversation, and then they're, like, laughing really weirdly, and then someone says something that sounds super innocuous to me, but then, like, the other character just, like, freaks out and gets really angry about it, and it's like, oh, my gosh, like, I cannot pinpoint these characters, like, emotional motivations, and I find it really compelling to watch, but also, like, uh, very draining, like... I, I took several breaks during this movie, and that felt very necessary. Like, I don't think I could ever be like, oh, it's a John Cassavetes marathon. Are you excited? And like, no, no, I am not excited. <laughs> he, he's probably the filmmaker I like the most that I would least like to watch multiple of his movies in a row. That's fair. I saw a movie recently that I'm also keeping quiet on where people respond in ways that I don't emotionally recognize, but still am on board for their responses and find them interesting. I've been critiquing a lot of movies recently being like, I don't understand why someone would act that way. But it's again, like another thing where I'm like, oh, the problem is that I don't understand it. It's just that it's poorly written. Like Mm -hmm. when it's well written, if I don't understand the response, I'm still there for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the acting is really good. Cassavetes himself is super good in it. Peter Falk, as usual. And uh, Ben Gazzara, really great. All three of the leads. <laughs> the titular husbands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> husbands under the influence. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's funny, the movie opens with like a bunch of still photos of them like hanging out in their backyards and stuff like that. And there's one where they're all shirtless and, like, flexing. And Ben Gazzara is so ripped. I was like, what the fuck? How the fuck? Did... He has, like, enormous, like, like bodybuilder, like, 
muscles, and I was like, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he could have gone toe-to-toe with Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't have that special throat-ripping maneuver, though? (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Ilya. I rewatched Basic Instinct and loved it. (laughs) Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. Uh, what a great uh, movie. Yeah. What a fun movie. And like even like the stuff that I guess is probably like maybe the the least uh thing that I am happy to herald like Joe Esther has a script. <laughs> right. I think it's like there's parts of it that are pretty good. Like there's the, I like the way that On the seems... scale of Joe Estertas scripts, it's his best. Yeah, a pretty significant margin. I think I just like really like the <laughs> how dynamic all the scenes just are, like how the dialogue just really just jumps from one character to the next. How scenes like that part where the cops are first introduced at the murder scene and how the camera just whips around left and right and then like this guy says something and then this other guy says something and it's just like so much going on right away and it just puts you in this really i don't know like it's like a really fun atmosphere um although obviously you're watching like just these kind of like i don't know miserable people like be be miserable together um and um it feels so breezy um i don't know it's um i i think that this type of uh way of like the way that Hollywood makes films where characters are just like you don't have a lot of time to just ponder every what everyone is saying mm-hmm. it just like kind of ping-pongs from one to the next is like a pretty cool thing like you know it, it really rewards movies on rewatch so uh, kind of wish that people would consider that sort of style again um but yeah i mean we've talked about this movie a lot and a lot of the things that make it really great so i won't get into that too much we've talked about it some but it's never been uh like gotten a canon treatment or anything well perhaps one other thing that really (coughs) should be canonized from this movie is sharon stone's performance i think that that's probably one of the um one of the things that while this movie's famous for like her scenes and her character and all that stuff, I think what's really underrated is just how just how much she just wipes people off the screen whenever they're with her. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. It's she's so into this role. I've rarely seen like a uh this word is gross, but synergy between like an actress <laughs> and and a character. Um and it's really just amazing to watch. It's so much fun. Um, nice. And at the same time, also just have this, have Michael Douglas as like the supposedly lead character who's just completely foiled by her at every opportunity and just can always just only hope to be like two, three steps behind whatever she wants to do with him. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a pretty fun dynamic to have in a movie but um yep real i would fun. like to know your updated fairhoven rankings 
Yeah. Because you've rewatched most of them now? I have. Um, I think... Uh, I haven't rewatched Showgirls, so I'm, I'm, I'm leaving that one off um, for now. Um, but I think it's like... Uh, I think Basic Instinct might be number one at this point. Yes. Um, so I think it is basic, for me. Basic Instinct number one... I think Total Recall number two and Starship Troopers number three, although like that's also, um, you know, they're all great, but that's mm-hmm. that's it at the moment. But where does Black Book land? Yeah, Black Book <laughs> and Robocop below those. Yes. <coughs> and L at the very bottom. Apparently, <laughs> I should really rewatch that one. I might. That, I, that's a take I'm absolutely fine with with changing uh, on rewatch upon rewatch. <laughs> Um, it's just, yeah, it's fine. Uh, I, I might've, uh, overrated the thing, like the, just the amount of rape scenes in that movie just kind of put me off. Um, and I might've, uh, They're because really of that, gross. underrated. It's, it's yeah. an upsetting movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a fine thing to and be it, put off by. Yeah. <laughs> in a career filled with upsetting movies, it might be his most upsetting. It's true. <laughs> Um, I will also herald a movie that I rewatched. It's called Snowpiercer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You may have heard about it on previous podcasts, like the full podcast that we did about it, or the end of the year podcast. That was my number one movie of that year. <laughs> Guess what? I still think it's really good. It's uh, pretty amazing how... Uh, smooth and actiony and exciting the movie is, and is still as depressing as it is. <laughs> like, if you're paying attention to that movie and you walk out feeling anything other than humanity is doomed, I don't know what <laughs> exactly you are watching, because like, he really sort of critiques, I think, pretty much every political philosophy. And how they all play into every one, even truly revolutionary philosophies, still are working with the system. Right. <laughs> and that system's going to grind everybody up. <laughs> and you're not going to be left. And the only option is to destroy the earth <laughs> and hope for the best <laughs> with the few people who remain who are probably going to be eaten by a hungry polar bear. <laughs> having read uh, about how to defend yourself from a bear attack seeing a polar bear is the worst type of bear to see in the wild because apparently <laughs> they will they really will eat you most other bears don't want to wow yeah i uh mm-hmm. you and i are listening <laughs> to the same podcasts because i heard that same discussion <laughs> nope not unless you're listening to uh the ringers nfl podcast oh wow <laughs> So I guess the people who did the podcast I was listening to had listened to that same <laughs> discussion because I can't even I can't remember what podcast it was now, but I think it might have been uh, Punch Up the Jams, actually. Hmm. Yeah. I don't remember that, but um, they didn't discuss it. They were just talking about like defending yourself from animals, and then they were like, "I wonder if any of these myths that we've heard are true," and I was like. Now I'm wondering that as well. So I started looking up WikiHouse on how to defend yourself from various animals. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
the main thing that I actually wanted to say about the movie is that I can't believe I didn't put it together uh, <laughs> that uh, someone throws a shoe at someone at the beginning of the movie and that I wasn't like immediately like, oh yeah, George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great moments in American history yep. is when that oh, guy yeah. threw a shoe at George Bush. And uh, I'm glad that... the shoe. Twice. Well, the shoe. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. He was dedicated to trying to hit hit Bush. He's he had the second shoe ready as soon as the first shoe missed. Too bad Bush is a former athlete and knew how to dodge things coming yeah, out. The motherfucker's <laughs> fast. <laughs> former dodgeball champ, damn it. I mean, I think he was a he was a pitcher in college. Was the yeah, thing he was a baseball so player, if, yeah. if, if, if you're for baseball players, if you're yep. if you're a pitcher. Being able to dodge a ball coming right back at you is a very useful skill to have. That's true. <laughs> so it's a whole fuck of a lot <laughs> if you get hit with it. <laughs> sure does. I can end your career. Anyway, um, let's talk about this movie, which is White Mountains, and it was my pick. Um, and basically, uh. I'll say two things, uh, a little bit about the political climate and then a little bit about the plot. Um, and that is that, so it takes place in 1916 during the Kyrgyz popular revolt. Um, and that is sort of during uh, World War One. the Tsar was, uh, in order to fight World War One, felt forced to draft from outside of, I guess, Russia, Maine, to the more outer Soviet regions, uh, including the Muslims of Mongolia. And this was, the response to this was a revolt. Um, And this sort of takes place, I guess, towards the tail end of that political uprising, uh, but before the Bolshevik Revolution, even though the Bolsheviks existed and are mentioned in this movie. and the movie is about a man named Mukash who has been forced to abandon his farm and is headed to the nearest large city to try to find a new employment or an education. And uh, it follows him as he tries to escape the czarists and interacts with the local people. Patrick, what did you think about this movie? Um, I liked this movie. Uh, I thought that it looked very pretty. Um, and I I think it did a lot with sort of a very sparse plot. Because it doesn't have a lot going on, but it's mostly people sort of, uh, I guess, pontificating on their ancestry and on sort of their history and what's to come for them basically in the wake of this, I don't know, I guess like political upheaval that's happening in their country. And I thought that was actually pretty interesting to get a view from the people who were only sort of tangentially involved in this kind of like major event in history um, to have their viewpoint looking from the outside in on something that, you know, I think has been, like well represented but it hasn't ever been represented from this point of view that i've ever seen so i think that that's pretty fascinating 
Um, and I thought that the movie actually moved pretty quickly. Like, I was expecting this to take a lot longer than it did, and then I looked up and it was like 20 minutes left in the movie, and I was like, whoa, this like went real fast. So that's yeah. always yeah, that's <laughs> a welcome surprise to me. <laughs> yeah, it's only like an hour long, right? Or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 65 yeah. minutes. <laughs> Very good length. It's true. Basil? Um, I didn't really like this movie, but mostly because I found it incomprehensible. Like, <laughs> for most of the movie, I couldn't understand what was going on. And by most, I mean all, I guess. Like, <laughs> I sort of understood at the early beginning. is like, oh, that guy's trying to get away from these guys. Uh, they're trying to chase him uh, for something. And then once he sort of evaded them, I was like, now I don't know anything that's going on. Like, <laughs> like he says something about a town, and then he's, like, hanging out with some villagers. And I was like, is this the town? Because this is, like three huts is that a town is that enough huts to constitute a town or is he still on his I way think they're to a yurts. town yeah 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 that's Yurta. right yeah it up. But, uh, uh yeah and i mean i couldn't tell if some of that just had to do with like translation issues because uh, i don't speak russian and a lot of the time the subtitles seemed really confusingly worded i was like that that's not a sentence that i would normally uh <laughs> see written out in English and I'm having difficulty parsing it as I'm watching. Um, but yeah, so like it has maybe nothing to do with the movie itself, but I think I was just adrift in uh, a part of the world that I have no context for. Like until after the movie when I was reading about it, I didn't even know for sure that it didn't take place in the 60s. Like... If they referenced the year, I missed it. So I was like, this doesn't feel like it probably takes place in the 60s. And yet, I don't know that it doesn't because there's no signifiers that are cluing me in one way or the other. It's like a bunch of people in yurts. I didn't see any, like, you know, there wasn't any, like, uh, vehicles or other things that would be like, oh, no, this is for sure the contemporary day. Or, like, older vehicles would be like, oh, no, this is... And I was just like, I don't, I don't know what's, I don't know what's <laughs> happening, and that's how I felt for the whole hour. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like this movie. I think it's uh, a good companion movie to uh, the Color of Pomegranates. Um, so uh, while they're obviously like in a lot of ways they're a lot different but like i guess the the thing the theme i think that connects those two movies is the idea of uh national identity in a soviet movie um that is not focused on russian identity um yeah. and in this case it's kyrgyzstan which is not a movie it's not, sorry it's not a uh identity or a nationality or an ethnicity that's been covered a lot in film um so uh and the thing that i would kind of touched on in the podcast on the color of pomegranates is like the idea that during this time of when movies were made during the Soviet Union uh, while it was a very ethnically diverse country a lot of the movies that were being produced were like uh, you know um, talking about a Soviet identity rather than a historical national uh, identity for the different republics that made up the Soviet Union I think that this movie while not nearly as uh, 
radical as the color of pomegranates and also much more favorable, with a much more favorable view towards the Soviets. So the Bolshevik in this movie is a pretty positive character. He helps the main character out. He is the one that gives him this sheet of paper that he ends up giving to the woman in order to like lead her to the city so she can, you know, study and have like an independent life. Um, I think that this movie is definitely still pretty concerned with preserving a sense of identity and culture that is was being whitewashed or like Russo washed, if you want to call it that, yeah. um, <laughs> during that time. And I think from that perspective, this movie is like, washed. yeah, pretty <laughs> culturally important, valuable, interesting, because as Patrick kind of mentioned, it's like, it's not a perspective you see very often. Um, and whenever, you know, so you would talk about the Russian civil war and that whole era, it wouldn't ordinarily include a lot of references and or characters from all these different um, ethnic backgrounds, uh, or if it would, it would just basically be to mention how communist they were or how anti-communist they were. And a lot of what this movie is based in plays kind of outside those two poles, and that's, I guess, what makes it kind of interesting. Ruben. I realize I didn't say my own name. So. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um yeah, I basically have the same problems as Basil, but it didn't bother me, I guess, as much as him, because I still came away liking the movie. Um, it has a lot of structural issues, and it has serious audio issues. There's one part where uh, a child is talking, and it doesn't sound like a child's voice, and it doesn't sound like it was recorded outside. They just dubbed like an adult man yeah, yeah. <laughs> talking for a child. Uh, later and that's um, if the movie had like the movie at points is like kind of surreal if it had gone like really surreal maybe that would have worked but it just seems like it was a question of production not an intentional aesthetic choice um, uh, but yeah I think um, that idea of perspective is really captured in the music, which is probably my favorite part of this movie, is that the music is very diverse. Like, they're not uh, limited to, like, one type of music or even, like, a general region of instrument. They are willing to shift the music, like, pretty radically at times, depending on what they're trying to convey in a scene. And uh, it's... Um, I don't think that I've ever actually seen a movie that is willing to do that. Like, maybe Tangerine comes closest, although I think that the music still fits in with, with like a general theme there. But like, I don't know. That was my first point, was music. Mm. <laughs> Musies. Yeah, I, th I think um, in the credits they actually list a group of dubbing actors, so I think that all of the voices in this are dubbed, because sync sound yeah. is a really like hard-to-come-by thing for a long, long yeah. time. I, I think it's it's not just that, though, because like, I think I saw in the credits that it was like, dubbed into 
something or other. Like, so I think that they were speaking their natural dialect yeah, and they dubbed, dubbed it into Russian. them more. Yeah. 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 So the rest of the dubbing, though, is better. Like, right. <laughs> it sounds like maybe, or they were better able to make it sound like people were actually outside when they were speaking, or it was an adult man speaking for an adult man. <laughs> Yeah. A young woman speaking for a young woman, as yeah. opposed to like, I imagine there that one child's of, voice. Yeah, I imagine there aren't a lot of child voice actors and uh, <laughs> <laughs> who could speak in a Kyrgyzic, yeah, a Kyrgyzic dialect. <laughs> so you just gotta get like a what's it, the woman who plays Bart, an just adult woman who's good at doing a small child's voice. <laughs> <laughs> speak this obscure language, please. I think Nancy Cartwright is her name. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's this one scene that really sold the movie for me, and it's where it gets the most sort of, uh, I guess, unnarrative. Surreal isn't exactly the right word because there's nothing unrealistic, I guess, happening. It's mostly just shots of landscape. Someone is telling this fable about a hunter while this music plays, and I was like, hmm, if this was the whole movie, if it was just an hour of this, mm. I'd be way more into it. Every time that something like plotty or discussion-y comes up, I have more trouble paying attention. Yeah, yeah. the uh, the underlying political plot is a little hard to follow because they're kind of imprecise with the way that they uh, meet out who is on what side basically they they don't set that up real well but you're right all of the stuff about you know like the the mythos of their culture is actually like really interesting especially the old man talking about the the time of the wolves and the time of the foxes and the the happy times to come yeah i mean i think that's a case of extremely knowing your audience like i don't think when the filmmakers were making this film they were like hmm I wonder how this would play to millennial Americans in <laughs> 50 years. They're like, they're like a thousand people at most are going to see this, and they're all from this region. They're going to understand exactly culturally and politically what's going on. I don't need to explain any of it to them. <laughs> this is the first movie that I've ever seen that would have benefited from those annoying anime fan subbers where it's like asterisk and then like yeah. a huge text on the screen explaining the context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's also definitely a political statement where you make a movie, you make your audience basically, uh, you force them to just, oh, we don't really know this culture that well. Yeah. But this movie is not really going to introduce us to it too much. <laughs> For sure. And I think when I feel more comfortable saying that it's like an intentional decision, like there was a discussion we had about a rage up in Harlem, it's mm. like, being very specifically not designed for white audiences that like, yeah, I think that is like a really cool political decision to be like, yeah, this isn't for you. Yeah. <laughs> like if you enjoy it, that's cool. But like, it's not, it's not, yeah. it's not your and thing. I mean, <laughs> let's say it was even maybe intended for Russian audiences. I don't think yeah. a lot of Russian audiences would have known what to do oh, with yeah. a lot of this, you know? Mm. So, uh, <laughs> they give them the Bolshevik at the beginning <laughs> and they give them the czarist to bookend this movie, basically. Uh, the evil guy. Yeah, like, here's your typical hero and villain in Soviet cinema. And, but, and then there's a bunch of by... people sitting around, sitting in yeah. yurts, and, like, yeah. talking about weird stuff. And, like... Islam. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I was wondering how people felt about the depiction of the uh, woman character. You mean the which, which the, one, the, the younger mother? woman the or, younger the woman blind or the yeah, blind woman? Yeah, the younger woman who runs away at the end. Mm. I mean, I I wasn't like again because I was having so much trouble following the plot of the movie. I was like, is this also somewhat like an anti-religion movie? Because isn't it that she's like supposed to be sold to a husband yeah. mm. and she doesn't want to be, and so she runs away to like the more cosmopolitan yeah. urban environment where she can be a, a free woman yeah. instead of? It does, it does seem very concerned with her own self-liberation. Um, that does seem to be a big point in the movie because they have pretty like deliberate shots of her like getting away at the end like riding the horse across the river and i think that's supposed to be a big metaphor within the movie of like you know here here is you fording this you know this uh i guess like treacherous landscape of these you know i don't know how many years probably thousands of years of tradition and you're just like you know using this horse to escape and this new knowledge will come to you and you'll be you know, free of this old way of life that mm. you are, you basically aren't, you basically just aren't here for anymore. You're just like, no, I want to do things different. And I, yeah. I, I kind of like that. I also liked her hairstyle too. Like, I don't know if that's a traditional <laughs> hairstyle, but I will say that the, the like bunches of little braids that she has coming off her hair, I was like, oh, that looks really cool. Like, I feel like I don't see that in a lot of movies. I think if you take, her like if you take this movie a bit more allegorically or whatever and you have maybe her representing this like future for this uh group of people um then it also it's it's i guess it like plays two ways one is like i guess there's a good reason why she escaped this life and like her mother basically tells her that she should go away rather than be forcefully married to this terrible dude mm -hmm. um but at the same time i think this movie is also like kind of really sad about how all of this that she has to leave behind is just not going to exist anymore and i think um i think that's like the movie's like trying to also make that statement like i mean yeah the soviet union did some good for us in that it took us away from these royalists and it also maybe changed in a way our habits or religious things that were like very bad for women for example um mm -hmm. but also it sort of meant that we had to leave behind a lot of what made us us you know like what made the religion and everything else that just made up our community in order to get away from that. And we never really had a choice to sort of develop maybe this ourselves. And I think that's like, I think there's a sadness about that that's like permeates throughout. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. That's cool. It's too yeah. bad that, uh, you know, the Soviet Union's idea of its gender equality is much higher than it actually <laughs> played out. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's also represented in the death of the main character mm -hmm. because, like, you could, like, yeah, she is going to the city that is supposedly 
uh, they believe is being held by Bolsheviks. And so therefore it has opportunities that um, other cities might have that are still being held by royalists. Um, and that, you know, everyone seems like pretty into the idea of getting educated, uh, learning to read and write and things of that nature. But uh, it still involves the guy who is our protagonist having to lead them away and quite literally die for the cause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is sad. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I like his little uh, speech that he gives about how scary it is not to know things. Because he's basically admitting, like, you know, it it's nice that we can live in this uh, society and have this, you know, like, cultural heritage and all that. But, like, at a certain point, our ignorance of what's going on around us is going to kill us because, like forward progress cannot be stopped like even if you know we sit up here isolated for thousands of years and maintain our culture like at some point somebody's going to find us and they're just going to run over us because we we do not know the things that they know and (laughs) other people are constantly learning things so it is a little bit of that push and pull of like holding on to the cultural heritage is good but holding on to like steadfastly and not like refusing to move forward at all is basically going to lead to a type of death that yeah. you know could be absolute if only colonialism wasn't a thing yeah yeah necessarily be true yeah because yeah. i think that's definitely also a point that this movie makes like the main character is also in the beginning he's trying to i think he's trying to get to his mom um, right? And uh, instead, he joins up with this village. So he never gets to his mom. Mm-hmm. I think this idea is like, he's trying to get back to what he's, you know, his idea of home. And then he realizes, well, maybe that home just actually isn't there anymore. And maybe the best thing I can do is uh, point a way forward for this woman that I meet and maybe love or whatever. Um <clears throat> And then, like Ruben said, kind of have to sacrifice myself because there's really no, not a lot of things I can do. So it's really kind of about this community, like not having the ability to um, develop on its own terms. Like they're kind of torn between this one influence and this other influence. And there's really no sense of home anymore that's like that they can really get back to. Um, and they just have to kind of align themselves with whatever is the better type of colonialism, which in this case may be Soviet. <laughs> uh. mm-hmm. I think uh, that, yeah, it's represented pretty well in the aesthetics as well, which is that, like, in terms of framing, this movie tends to be mostly shot in either, like, very extreme long shots where people are very small in frame or, like, pretty close medium shots where you can just see like their torso and their face where they fill up most of the frame and so if we're to put on that this thematic structure that we're already talking about of like a long view of both like globalism and uh colonialism and like seeing people as like very small and then like very close up to like their humanity and their culture and no sort of balance, just this 
extreme between choosing between the two. Yeah. People don't exist in an environment. It's either the environment overwhelms them or you're right up in there in right. their face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was uh when I was watching the shots of the horses coming towards that village, uh there's a few of those really long shots where they're just like you see the riders coming towards it and for a movie that was clearly like not did not have like a huge budget or anything they really come away with a lot of like very epic shots <laughs> like it's pretty mm-hmm. it's pretty cool um and i always like i was really wondering like how i even set up a shot like that where like there's horses like hundreds and hundreds of meters away sort of like going a, a certain way and like how do you even like tell yeah, them I where mean, to go that would like <laughs> you know, thinking like about kind of... the logistics of filming like <laughs> a lot of the times like you would have to have you know like some sort of uh walkie-talkie system to be like yeah. all right we want you to go now like because you can't mm-hmm. really be precise about when they're gonna go and like when you're supposed to be rolling the camera for that sort of thing especially like i imagine on this shoot they were probably just like all right right out there and then ride back toward us over the hill, and we'll just like roll whenever, because it was just like there's no communication between those two points, basically. And and filmmaking can be a nightmare like that sometimes. Like communication is one of the biggest concerns on a film set at all times. Mm. Just trying to get things to go at the right time, <laughs> especially because yeah. they were shooting on film here too. So film is even like more terrifyingly imprecise because you don't have you know like today you you would have like a digital like screen that you could see like five different people could see what was going on in the screen and then it was just like one guy with a with his you know eye in the eyepiece and like a focus puller probably and like that was it like that like you had to hope that that guy had pulled the focus just right <laughs> to make sure everything was in focus on the shot and so yeah filmmaking yeah. is is a minefield like that sometimes and it, it does they did do a really good job with a lot of these shots yeah i think it's it makes sad. volga volga seem more disappointing in retrospect <laughs> because soviet cinema at least in my opinion seems to have such a rich history when it comes to cinematography like mm. um Obviously, you know, there's a huge amount of uh, filtering going on before it ever reaches me. But often when I watch Soviet cinema, it's probably the area where I'm most likely to be like, holy shit, what was that shot? Like, when I think of some of the directors, and I, um, I mean, Tarkovsky is the most obvious one, but also stuff like... Uh, the cranes are flying, or it yeah. starts off like in a close-up inside of a bus, and then someone hands it off to a crane, and it lifts up in front of, above an entire parade. <laughs> Stuff like that. It's, it seems like, for whatever reason, and the way that this movie uses like light and shadow and stuff like that, and montage cutting those like extreme shots together, is like, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of things that I like about American movies, but I don't know if they achieve the same heights. Yeah, in I terms mean, I of think, that. Yeah. Based on the time period that it came out, I'm sure Volga Volga was very intentionally not doing those things. <laughs> yeah. Since those directors were getting in trouble for being too 
<laughs> Cosmopolitan and bougie yeah. with their artsy fartsy. <laughs> yeah, Tarkovsky would have had a hard time in the 40s, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, like Eisenstein wasn't allowed to make movies for a pretty long time. And Tarkovsky had a hard time at the time movies. that he made yeah, films. It's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's true. He was yeah, not, was... yeah, super well celebrated nope. in his era. When we were talking about risks of filmmaking, it made me think of that sad story about the sacrifice where the house is on fire and they, uh, the camera jammed during the big long take at the end. And mm. so then they had to rebuild the house and set it on fire again. again yeah. <laughs> there was no like coverage camera. <laughs> It's really tragic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Still looks cool, though. Second oh. time they got it. <coughs> oh, film. Something that kind of doesn't work for me aesthetically, though, is apparently this uh, movie is a big influence on Paul Greengrass because there's a lot of handheld action shots in this movie <laughs> yeah. that just look like bad shaky cam. And I was like, yeah. I don't really need this. <laughs> I could do it like this. <laughs> yeah, the running, the like the POV shots running down the hill. I was just like, ah, incomprehensible. <laughs> I wonder if they were like the holding holding a camera while they were running. And, like, <laughs> That's what it looks like. It themselves. just looks like a guy going like, <laughs> with it, like on his shoulder, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing that with uh, that basically, like, they didn't have steady cams. They didn't have the money, even though they had been invented, the Coen brothers, for raising Arizona. They basically just, like, created, like, this system with, like, planks of wood <laughs> to, like, help steady the camera for, like, those amazing shots where they, like, run inside of a house and follow someone all through mm -hmm. the rooms and stuff like that. And they should have passed on that wood wood making technology <laughs> to the past. Yeah, I remember... Uh like an interview with Barry Sonnenfeld where he also talked about how uh, they had to like like jerry-rig like a system to swap filters mid-shot because like it's so much harder to shoot film in like a fluorescent lighting than it is like natural lighting so like when he mm -hmm. runs into the convenience store from outside they had to like quickly swap the filter to you know so that the light didn't look like garbage and then swap it out again like when he leaves yeah pretty intense yeah that, that's one of the that's one of the oh, like we'll biggest issues with with shooting on film <laughs> is like film has to be lit in such a specific way that you it that's generally what takes the longest with uh like shooting on film is like you have to light the shit out of everything because <laughs> film reacts so strongly to every little bit of light you that you put you know in front of it <laughs> yeah. yep digital's pretty cool i watched strange days on 35 millimeter and it was fine but there were definitely points where i was like ah, i wish this was a digital production because <laughs> <laughs> like whenever it you know i mean it's a classic thing with 35 millimeter especially uh uh prints that have been around for a while but you can always tell when a reel's about to end because it gets real dirty <laughs> and real fucked up looking and with this like for some reason the audio was like kind of messed up every time uh during the real changes so yeah i was like mm, I slightly distracting from my experience <laughs> yeah I, I can't imagine having to uh record on 
like analog tape. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> recording sound on Actually. digital is enough of a hassle. Like recording on <clears throat> on like a reel to reel or whatever would be just a nightmare. <laughs> And then splicing it all together for your sound design. It's horrible. Sitting there mm. for, like, hours just gluing <laughs> tape yeah, together. Cutting tape. Just, uh, cutting it and gluing it back together. Ugh. I did that with Filmstuck. I did that a couple times. It is, uh, I found it oddly comforting, but it is very time-consuming. Especially, like, when you cut something and then you're like, hmm. It's running too fast. You're gonna have to go dig three frames out of the like trash, the oh, film stack trash, yeah, and tape them back on. <laughs> <laughs> Always try to undercut, make sure that uh, it runs too slow, and then just finesse Slowly. it down. <laughs> yep. A couple frames at a time. Uh, does anyone else have anything they want to say about? This movie? Um, I kind of wanted to tell the anecdote about bears that I heard once. It was <laughs> also about different types of bears, since we mentioned that in the beginning of the podcast. A uh, friend of mine was in Vancouver once, and apparently in Vancouver they have two types of black or brown bear that look mm -hmm. extremely similar, but who both have wildly different ways of, like, hunting people if they want to hunt or like if they want to like chase after yeah. people and one of them you're supposed to like get on a tree because they mm -hmm. can't climb and the other one is an extremely proficient climber <laughs> and then yeah. like they told this story and then they showed the two photos of the bears side by side and they looked exactly <laughs> the same <laughs> and my friend was just like <coughs> Cool. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just roll the dice then. <laughs> I'm be I'll just climb this tree climbing. and see what yeah, they the do. The best guess is size. Yeah. Um, I believe it's black bears are the ones that are worse climbers, and uh, they're smaller. Um, no, I have that reversed. Black bears are the better climbers, and they're smaller. Uh, Makes sense. But on huge. average, but like... Uh, yeah, but a small brown bear could trick you <laughs> right. into not climbing, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and even with them, you have to make sure if you're going to climb that you climb very high because yeah. if they're a large bear standing on their hind legs, they can reach, you know, 16 to 20 feet into the air. <laughs> so you're going to want to get about 35 yeah. to 40 feet up. Yeah, in that case, and I'm just not climbing. Also, you want to be in a big tree, yeah, not yeah. a small tree, because if it's a I small tree, they're going to push it over. Yeah. They have an enormous yeah. amount of uh, force oh boy. behind them. I'm never going into the woods. I'm just taking a risk <laughs> and running, because what am I going to do if I'm up on that tree? And even if that bear don't climb, but he's like, okay, I'll just sit here until you eventually have to climb down because you get hungry or... And whatever, you get tired. Yeah, you just have to wait it out. You have to hope that it's more impatient than you are. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I think mean, it would win. Another thing that I've heard is uh, <laughs> if you could find, like, a kind of uh, steep hill and start <laughs> you heard running that from up me. it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 
Yeah, but that's a that's an okay strategy because they have to stand on their hind legs to yeah attack and yeah. it's a way to dissolve up. a lot of their strength by standing oh. on a, a steeper incline so that um, mm. yeah it's not as strong when they swipe at you. Yeah. But, uh, if they hit you with a swipe, you will still be severely injured or die. So you still right. need to have like a pack or something, like mm-hmm. a rolled up jacket that you can defend yourself with. Mm-hmm. Maybe I heard this. Did so, you talk about this on another podcast? <laughs> this maybe I heard it from you. <laughs> yeah, I heard. I heard maybe. it on definitely doomed. Um, on one, maybe I on one of the mini Oh no, definitely doomed is weeks like. The yeah. episode that's being I, released now was recorded like two months ago. Maybe yeah. it was the maybe it was the Annihilation podcast, actually. Yeah. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was, that, makes that. <laughs> that makes that more was, sense. That makes more sense. We're all wondering how we know it's this like, thing. Oh, shit, no, I didn't hear this from another podcast. I heard it from you. <laughs> yeah. That's why I. I, like I was wondering about, about that actually. Yeah. <laughs> like. What other podcast was it? Did it no, involve two of remember. the people in this? I don't where I heard this now. Oh man! Yep. Whoo! Uh, bears! No bears yeah. in this bears movie. In that movie. Fun times. The plain dead thing that you've heard. Yeah, if you're not encountering a polar bear, the plain dead thing is is the correct response to both mm. brown and black bears. Um, but you have to assess the situation. So there are like ways to tell if they're actually going to attack you um if they're aggressive if they're hungry and stuff like that and if they're not if they're just protecting something like a cub or food that they already found and are worried about you trying to take it from them if you play dead they will go away Mm. or leave you be um so carry a gun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or good luck. You're gonna have to have a big fucking gun to take down a bear <clears throat> less than like in a shot. <laughs> well, I would I would generally just use it to scare them. Honestly. Just like a fire shot into the air. Yeah, good work. Maybe. They'd be like, what the fuck was that? I think the real solution is just stay in the city. Yeah. The woods are overrated. <laughs> Don't go into the woods. <laughs> I'm generally not a, a woodsy person. That's true. Woods are boring. Yeah. Yeah. I also read Russian, about how to defend yourself uh, from sharks, and I am. I do like swimming. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Punch them in the nose. That's what I heard. Yep. Punch them in the nose. It's relatively correct. <laughs> Again, how do you punch underwater? Though that is what yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> Give him one of these. <laughs> like your is really slow. Your <laughs> arm moves so slow. Like it'd be just like a light tap. I don't know how you're supposed to. Well, I'm assuming that they'll be like relatively close to the surface if they're attacking you. So probably just get down in there as best you can. <laughs> so I looked up just, three. Just start choking. <laughs> <laughs> just headlock the shark. <laughs> so the three the three myths up. that I looked up were um, playing dead with bears, which is uh, pretty pretty accurate. Um, punching sharks in the nose, which is more convoluted but sort of accurate. And then running zigzag when a crocodile or alligator is chasing you because they can't zigzag well. That one is totally false. Don't <laughs> believe that one at all. Um, 
Crocodiles and alligators can run fast for a short period of time, but it's a short period of time, and you should be running as fast as you possibly can so that they cannot catch up to you. <laughs> uh, trees are also an excellent option with crocodiles and alligators. If you see a tree closed, go up it. You only have to go up a couple feet, and you'll be completely safe from one. Yeah. If you're in the water, though, the situation becomes very different. If you're attacked and uh, you're probably screwed. You're yeah, you're fucked at that point. Good luck fighting off this dinosaur. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if Good crocodiles... piece of advice is always go for the eyes. If you have any chance to poke something in the eye that's attacking you, that's the best way to defend yourself. If crocodiles and bears ever work together, humans will be fucking doomed. <laughs> There was a meme that went around like a couple months ago where it was like, uh, it was like a bunch of animals and also like a hunter, um, including like a quantity, like a thousand rats or like two lions. And it was like, pick two and then you have to defend yourself against the rest or something like that. And uh, most people were like picking the big ones. They were like, I want the gorillas and the lions. Or some people were like, oh, a thousand rats, like... That's so many rats. Like you can like overwhelm things. I want the the rats, but no one thought about like location. And I was like, if I can pick my location, I'm and I'm swimming out to the middle of a lake. I'm taking the whatever dozen crocodiles that they offered, and like mm -hmm. and like fifteen hawks. And I was like, the crocodiles <laughs> will protect me from anything that tries to get into the water, and the hawks can slowly pick everything else off. <laughs> I was yeah. only worried about the rats at that point. I was like, maybe a thousand rats could overwhelm <laughs> the crocodiles in the water and still get to me. I was like, mm. probably not. Yeah, <laughs> I, thousands not that many. I would, I would never <laughs> underestimate human ingenuity to like burn down the entire forest, though. So, <laughs> like, people do know how to use fire, which is an extremely a thing that animals do not know how to use. <laughs> And a lot of people wanted the hunter as well. They're like, that hunter's going to be useful. And I was like, mm, mm. not that useful. Against a thousand rats. <laughs> 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 well, they would be like, I want the hunter and the hawks. And they're like, the hunter will take out the big ones, like the gorillas and the lions. While the mm. hawks take out the smaller ones. Yeah, it just depends on how much time you have to prepare. Like... <laughs> If you but. give that hunter time to start a fire, <laughs> give me the hunter. <laughs> and there were bears too. Bears I was also worried about, water-wise. Yeah. Bears can fight in the water too. But oh, I yeah. thought a dozen crocodiles would be able to take out most of the things they could get in the water. <laughs> Anyways, you guys should look up the meme. It's pretty fun. You can think about yeah. your own responses. <laughs> Both you on the podcast and you listening to the podcast. Oh, yeah. <coughs> mm hmm. Anything else? <laughs> Good. I was just thinking of the fact that I was like, it would be cool if someone's like, oh, yeah, I have one more thing. <laughs> and told another story that was not about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> It was a good story, though. I'm glad, I'm glad it was told, even though it yeah. sounded like you were going to bring it back to the movie based on the way that you introduced it. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, nope. remember the scene where he had a dozen crocodiles in this movie? Yeah. Wow, that was pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. 
It was a very surprising end- ending. <laughs> and he like runs into the jungle. Spoiled <laughs> his animals, and it's like, all right, you can hypnotize two groups of them, and the rest of them are gonna attack you. <laughs> this movie just predicted memes about animals <laughs> fighting other animals. Um, all right, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you are enjoying the podcast. If so, subscribe using our podcast listening application or your podcasting listening application, either or. And uh, give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, which you can now do in phone if you have the Apple uh, podcasting app, which is cool. And uh, you can find all of our content on loosecannons.net. I think I mentioned it on the last podcast, but now all four videos of my countdown of the top 100 of the 2010s have been released. Yeah, they have. You can watch those. And you can read anything that we've written over the past four years, etc., etc. And uh, you can give us money now. We have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash loose cannons, plural. We have three patrons so far who we appreciate Michael Quinn, Durst Nora, Adam Underwood. And you can get uh, perks if you really want to see us do something. Like if you want to hear us podcast about uh, Beverly Hills Chihuahua 2, you can force us to do that for a pretty nominal fee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess that's it. Thanks again for listening. Yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs>